All right, so Mark's Gospel. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Listen as I read. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat, on, sat, sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil, the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand the parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away quickly. Still others, like seed thrown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. This is God's word. Now, a few weeks ago, I told you about a guy named Matthew O'Reilly. Matthew O'Reilly is an EMT. He's a medical first responder on Long Island, New York. And I told you I was listening to him as he related his experiences in this role, his experiences having conversations with those who were dying. It's unfortunately something that he deals with on a very regular basis in the job that he has. And he said, this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he said that the number one thing at the top of the list, the number one thing that people want to talk about is forgiveness. They seem to sense this, this need, this guilt in their hearts, this need for absolution. But he said that while that was the number one thing, he said the thing that actually made the biggest impact on him personally, the thing that impressed itself upon him, was people's need to know that their life had meaning, that, that, that their life mattered, that it was productive. He said this first occurred to him, it really came home to him very early in his career. He was responding to a call. A woman in her late 50s had been in a car accident. She was pinned and trapped inside of her car. Critical, critical condition. And as the firefighters worked to extract her from the vehicle, he climbed into the wreckage to be able to render aid, and he started a conversation with her, started talking with her. And what she, she, he said what, what she said to him he's, has never left him. She said, there's so much more that I wanted to do with my life. Meaning. Now, let me ask you, what do you want to do with your life? What, what makes a life productive? And how do you get there? 
In, in, what, in what we just read, Jesus uses the image, doesn't he, of a seed finding the right soil and producing an abundant crop. Right? He's talking about agricultural productivity. And yet, with Jesus, like he does with all of his, his parables, the meaning goes beyond just sort of the earthly image of, of plants growing. Now, let's step back for a second. Let's, let's define, what do we mean by a parable again? What's a parable? A parable is a story drawn from the experiences of real life from which a spiritual truth is being communicated. Right? So, so, so a story drawn from the experiences of life from which a spiritual truth is being communicated, or just very simply, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Right? That's, what a parable, that's what a parable is. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's, of course, what he's trying to do here. To be very concise... Jesus is taking a story about agricultural productivity to signify the spiritual productivity that only occurs when the word, the message of the gospel, takes deep root in our hearts. Right? That's the summary. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Our productivity, real productivity, real meaning and purpose in our own lives is only going to occur when, like a seed going into the ground, the, the word of God comes into us, transforms us, it's only going to happen that way. In other words, he's answering the question, what is a productive life? So let's look at the parable here. Sim simple, simple headings. First, the story of the parable. What's the story that Jesus is telling? Then the meaning of the parable. What does it mean? Because he actually explains it to us. And then third, the problem of the parable. And we'll get to that. For, so for the story of the parable. Right? Now, this is, this is a great image that Jesus gives us here. But you need to understand a little bit about first century agriculture for it to kind of make sense. Because even if you grew up on a farm today, right, some of this, some of this you're not going to be, be able to completely relate to because they just did it differently. See, in the first century, in the first century, the planting time was usually in the fall. And they did that because the winter rains then would come and nourish the seeds that had been planted. And so they would plant, but the way that they did it was fields were basically everywhere. It was anywhere they could kind of find flat flat ground. And so fields were everywhere, and there were paths that sort of crisscrossed the, the fields. Where it's where people walked. The paths ended up. I mean, if you've, ever been on a, if, if you've ever been on a college campus, you know, where do they build the sidewalks? They watch where the grass gets worn down, and then they build a sidewalk there. Right? The, the, the paths occurred in the middle of these fields wherever people just walked and walked and walked and walked, and then they just kind of formed the paths. And the, what the sower would do, the farmer would do, is he'd just go out, and he'd take the seed, and he'd have his pouch, and he'd scatter it. You know, broadcasting is what it was. Now, I, you know, suburban kid like me or whatever, I hear broadcasting and I think, well, that's, that's a TV term. That's, you know, a term that originates from radio. No, it originated from farming, right? That's what, the, that's what they did. They took the seed and they cast it broadly across the, the ground. Now, the plowing of the ground, if it were to happen, would happen after the seed was, was sown, after the seed was, was thrown. Given the tools of the time, I guess that's what they figured. That this is what makes the most sense. It's kind of like, kind of like you know, when you make chocolate chip cookies and you have the batter and you pour the chips on top, and then you kind of fold it in. Like, that's how, that's how, it, would have, that's how it would have worked. Now, so that's, so that's the farmer, what the farmer does with the seed. He takes it, and he casts it broadly across the ground. And what Jesus says is that as he does this, some falls on ground where the soil, where the, where the, where the dirt, has been packed down, where people have just been walking on it. So as a result, the, the, the seed doesn't penetrate. It just sits on top. The birds come, eat it, take it away, and it's gone. Other seed, he said, falls on rocky ground. Now, some of you might get the image when you hear rocky ground of like all these pebbles and, and stuff like that. No, what it was was, was was ground where there was an inch or two of, of good soil on top, but underneath, like is common in the region, is kind of solid limestone. 
So the seed would, would land in the, in the thin layer of good soil. It would sprout up pretty quickly. But then as soon as, as, soon as the sun came out, it got hot, the water got, got dry, and the roots tried to go down further to, to solidify itself and to get moisture, they'd hit the rock, and they'd be done. The plant would wither, and the plant would die. Now, other seed, he says, seems to be okay from the outside, at least at the initial planting, but underneath there, there are also the roots of thorns and, and, and weeds. And so when the winter rains come, yeah, it nourishes the seed, but it also kind of re, reignites these, these weeds and these thorns, and they grow up too. And they compete for the nutrients in the, in the soil, and ultimately these thorns and weeds, they crowd out, they strangle the, the plant that's growing. Now, when you consider the situation and you think about it and you think about these, these three soils, this is a farmer's nightmare, right? But you don't have to actually be a farmer. I mean, you can sort of try to enter into that, but you don't have to be a farmer to really feel that kind of, of pain. Can you relate to that kind of frustration? I'm doing all this work, and look what's happening, right? You work at something really hard, and it doesn't work, right? You see, you see something, some great potential in some area of your life, and it fails, Right? You, make, you make an investment in something that you think is worthwhile and it's not rewarded. Right? You feel like you come, you come close to something you want, but then it doesn't happen. Right? Of course we can, re we can relate to that. Right? E every candidate or everyone, everyone who's ever supported a candidate who doesn't win, that's what you feel like. Right? Every athlete who plays in the big game and loses, that's what it feels like. Every relationship that you've ever invested in significantly, and it fails. You know what it feels like. Every couple that's ever struggled with infertility, every woman who's ever suffered a miscarriage, that's what it feels like. Right? This is the curse of living in a fallen world written large over all of our lives. This is the reality where we, where we live. And remember, this is, what God, this, is, this is what God told Adam would happen in a world that's broken by the consequences of our rebellion against God. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3? Adam had rebelled against God, and God told Adam, my command for you, my mandate is the same. I want you to go out, and I want you to, to tend the earth, and I want you to keep it. Tend and keep. Right? I want you to cultivate the ground. Right? In other words, I want you to take what's there, and I want you to make it productive. The only difference is now, Adam, it's going to fight against you. This is what he says in Genesis 3. This is what God says. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Oh, that's depressing. Right? Your whole life, you'll have this need for dirt, need for the dirt to, to live, but the dirt's going to fight against you, and ultimately you're going to die and become dirt. And if you're a farmer, you want to just kind of give up, <laughs> except, except for the fact that there's one more soil. And this last soil, the good soil, the properly aerated, the, the no rock, no thorns soil, this is the good soil. In this soil, the plant takes root, and it grows. It doesn't just grow. It grows like crazy, producing a yield of 30, 60, even 100 times. Now, I don't know what modern agriculture kind of yields look like or what's possible, but the normal yield at the time, from what I read, was about 10. So this, so this is extraordinary. This is miraculous. And it shows, what it's meant to show, is the, is the blessing of God amidst the consequences of the curse. 
It's as if God compensates the farmer by yielding more in the good soil than what was lost in the bad. So that's the story of the parable. And you see why it's properly really better referred to as the parable of the soils? I mean, a lot of Bibles kind of put the heading the parable of the sower, but it's really better referred to as the, the parable of the soils. Why? Because the condition of the soil is what's the main point. That's the main point of the story. There's absolutely no indication from what we read here that there's anything wrong with the sower. And nothing, he didn't do anything wrong one way or the other. Nothing wrong with the seed that he's casting. The sole determining factor as to whether something grows or doesn't grow is the condition of the soil. That's the, so that's the point of the story. And as a straight story, it's actually, it's actually really not that hard to, to understand. But figuring out what it means, that's for the disciples, that, that required a little bit more explanation. So later, then, after the, after the crowds had gone, it's just Jesus, it's his, it's his disciples, it's his immediate followers, and they're there, and they're hanging out, and they're trying to figure out what the parable means. And so Jesus breaks it down for them. So he's told them the story of the parable. That's number one, right? And now he gives them the meaning of the parable. And essentially what Jesus tells them is this. He says, look, I'm the sower. I'm the sower. And the message of the kingdom that I've been proclaiming as you've been with me all this time, that's the seed. And we've been doing this, haven't we? We've been sowing the seed. We've been preaching it. We've been broadcasting it. That's what Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all, are all about. This is what we've been doing. We've been doing this. And you see how it's been going for us. It's kind of like these soils, Right? These soils are like the hearts of the people that we've been talking to, that we've been ministering to. And we've gotten all kinds of different reactions from people, haven't we? That's what he's saying. The soil is like the human heart. So, so, so therefore, if you want to discover the differentiating factor to a productive, abundant yield, a meaningful life, it comes down to the condition of your heart and how it responds to the message that Jesus is, is proclaiming. What does it do with the seed that contains the life we desperately need for a plant that we can't grow on our own. Right? What do you do with the message of Jesus? Now, some hearts, Jesus kind of goes down then. He kind of goes down each of the soils, and he says, okay, let's, let's match them one to one. And he says, some hearts, they're just hard. Like the path where the seed hits and doesn't penetrate. Right? The message of Jesus just hits people, some people, and it just bounces. Right? There's no interest. There's no reception. There's nothing. Now, the Bible tells us that this, this hardness comes because of our own rebellion against God. That's what Paul talks about. In Romans chapter 1, it's probably a really clear place to be able to look and, and see that. Paul says, we're all created in the image of God, and yet we suppress that truth. We push against it. And the more we suppress it, the more ignorant, actually, of God we, we become, the harder we become. And so that we get to the point, Paul says, where we don't just tolerate evil, we begin to approve of it. We call what's evil good. But I want you to see, note that the hardening doesn't happen all at once, as Paul's kind of describing it. We have the image of God. We recognize it, but we suppress it. And as we suppress it, we get, we get harder. That's just like a path. And a path, the first time you walk over ground, that doesn't pack it down so hard that you can't plant something on it. But when you walk on it repeatedly, it becomes hard. Right? Instead of, and, and instead of being useful for planting, it becomes, it becomes a path. It becomes no longer fit for what it needs to be. The same is true for our heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So that's one kind of heart. Now, other hearts, Jesus says, are like the shallow soil that's on top of the, the limestone. The hardness is buried just a little bit below the surface, so it's not as obvious at first. Right? People, some people, hear the message of the kingdom of God, and they seem to like it for a little while. 
right? They get a good feeling. They get some positive energy. They like the music. They like the intellectual exercise. They like the, the moral ritual of institutional religion. And, but then it gets a little harder. It kind of gets hot. Suffering comes into, in, into someone's life or, or, you know, or some sort of drought of some kind. It, you know, maybe people come and they begin, to, they begin to persecute you. They begin to make fun of you because of what you believe or what you're doing with your time or whatever. And all of a sudden, because the roots are shallow, you just go. Right? No real understanding of the knowledge of God. No real deep roots. And so the, the, the faith that seemed to germinate quickly just sort of withers and, and dies. Now, then there's the thorny heart the strangled heart, the heart where Jesus is in competition with other things. And if I might just say, I think within the church community, right, let's, let's just have a conversation about this within the church community. Right? Within the church community, I think this is actually probably where our biggest problem is. That's just my opinion. Right? And maybe it's just looking at my own heart. But we tend, we tend not to weed the soil and we let other stuff kind of grow around us until those things begin to crowd out Jesus. Now, let's, let, me just, let, me just, let me just put three scenarios out to you, okay? Three scenarios, and in each of them, just, just ask a question, all right? I'll let you apply it. So listen, scenario number one. This past week, many of you, no doubt, followed closely the election and the political drama. Nothing wrong with that, right? If you're concerned, concerned citizen of a country, God calls you to pray for your leaders, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I want you, but question, all right? Let's say you could calculate, you add up, you sat down, you calculated the number of minutes that you spent in this last week reading Facebook posts, blogs, newspaper articles about the election, and you tallied it up, and you put it on a bar graph, and you just kind of put it up like this, right? And then you tally the number of minutes that you spent reading and hearing the Word of God, right? Reading the Bible, right? Thinking about the Bible. Right? And you tallied it up, and you put it on a graph, Think about it. All right, scenario number two. This afternoon, the Eagles will play the Atlanta Falcons. One o'clock. Some of you will watch it. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with football. It's not baseball, but not all sports can be baseball. That's okay. <laughs> right? But, but, let me, but let me ask you a question. If, if, if someone came and quizzed you tonight, say around eight, and, and, they, and they said, you know, and they quizzed you about, about the number of facts that you could recall about the day of football. You know, what the plays were, who won, what were the scores, who had the, who had the big plays, how much rushing yardage someone had, how much passing yardage, you know, all that kind of thing, the number of sacks, all, all the stats. How much could you recall? You graph it. <laughs> and then I want you to compare that to how much in a few hours you're going to remember from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Third scenario, it, it, you're at work, you're at school, you're in the playground, you're in the store, the grocery store, somewhere, and two people come up to you, one right after the other. And one of them says, hey, I just got, I just got a TV and cable and Netflix for the very first time. And you know, there's so much stuff that's out. There's so many things, so many things I could possibly watch. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think? Like, what's out, what's out there? What have you, what have you been watching? And then someone comes up right after that, and they, and they say to you, hey, I just got a Bible. I've never, got, I've never had one before. I just got a Bible. And I'm wondering, there's so much to read. It's so big. Like, you know, like, where would you start? What's good to read? Where, what have you been reading? Now, question. To which person would you have more to say? 
Which conversation do you feel better equipped to have? Which conversation do you think you could carry on more easily and for a longer period of time? Now, I'm not trying to encourage some sort of sense of moral superiority in some or some sort of false religious guilt in others. And I'm not saying that any of these things, hear me, are invalid things to, to participate in, to, to do. There's many of them. But, but this is very convicting to me personally when I kind of go through these scenarios because I'm going back to what I think a minute ago we all agreed that we wanted, an abundant, productive, rich life, a, a life of transcendent, eternal meaning. And what I see Jesus here saying is that only comes when the message of the kingdom, the gospel, has room to grow. It only happens when the other things that might share the soil are kept from strangling it. And I wonder, as, as I look at my own life, I wonder why you look, I look, at, you look at the state of politics or something like that and you move beyond appropriate concern into, into panic, into despair, into anxiety. And you wonder why, 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 why lives, our lives, seem at times to be unsatisfied, to be empty, to be, to be meaningless. It's because we let the thorns grow. We don't prune. Right? Even if we don't realize it as we happen, before we know it, as it's happening, before we know it, they strangle us. Now, I want you to contrast all those things with the good soil, the open heart, Jesus says. This is the soil that hears the word, and produces a crop that brings an extraordinary spiritual yield. Right? This is the heart that stands in contrast to all the others. Right? The open heart receives the message of Jesus immediately. It's, it's not like the hard heart where it just sits on the surface. It, just, it goes right down. The message of Jesus goes right in. It receives the message of Jesus deeply. There's no layer of rock. It just, the, the roots just grow. And the open heart receives the message of Jesus exclusively. The plant gets first priority, and everything else in competition gets pruned back or weeded out entirely. Right, so that's the meaning of the parable. Right, it tells us that the message of Jesus, just if we put ourselves in the position as a church, the position of the sower, what's it tell us? It tells us that the message of Jesus is to be spread widely. Right? And it gives us some practical encouragement that the message of Jesus is not always going to be received with equal interest, with equal enthusiasm. That only makes sense. Jesus is in his own ministry. That's what he's been experiencing. Right? And nobody said it better than Jesus. Nobody could be more winsome than Jesus. Right? Nobody could be challenged for not doing it in the, right, in the right kind of way, and yet this was exactly the reaction that Jesus got. So practically, as we go out and as we talk about the message of the kingdom, we should expect the, same very, the very same reactions. But it also tells us it also tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when we see absolute life transformation when the gospel takes root in someone's heart. That this is something that we should be expecting to happen. But there's one other thing it tells us. It tells us that the transformed life is completely dependent upon a heart that is ready to receive the message of transformation. But how does that happen? See, here's where we get to some of the problem. And maybe, you, maybe you, you kind of felt it as we read through the middles. Before we finish, we have to deal with it. The story of the parable, the meaning of the parable, and now the problem of the parable. Here's the problem. Go back to Mark 4 uh, and look at that portion in between the story, verses 1 to 8, and the meaning, verses 13 to 20. And let me just read it again. This is verses 9 to 12. Right, Jesus, Jesus said, after he finished telling them the story, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, so that they may be ever seeing and never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Now the problem and at least I think it's an under, the understandable reaction, at least, when you read something like this, is it seems to be saying, is, is it saying that, that Jesus is using parables sort of as a trick? I mean, that's the objection that someone might have. The question you might be asking, is Jesus saying to his disciples, okay, all right, this is the deal. I'm going to show you, but these other people, I don't want them to get it. And what does that mean? Right, when you say it like that, it actually, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of concerning because it doesn't make it sound like Jesus is, particularly loving or maybe that he's particularly just or, or fair. How do we answer that? Right, well, first, I, have to, I think we have to acknowledge that the, that, the, that the parables Jesus tells, they always have a dual purpose. It's just like any, I mean, actually, any, any teaching of, of, the, of the Word of God has a dual purpose. On the one hand, those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, soft soil, whatever the metaphor you want to use, those people, those, for those people, the teaching of God, the, the, the message of the parable, it encourages, it instructs, it illustrates, it gives us images to latch onto. I understand God better as a result of that. But on the other hand, those who don't, don't believe, who don't, who don't have ears to hear, right, for, for those, the teaching of God, it just discourages it, it, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And the dual purpose is intentional. In other words, a parable, like any teaching of Jesus, causes a divide. It makes really obvious the difference between those who believe and those who don't. And that's intentional. Jesus' teaching is intended to make obvious the divide. Now, importantly, remember, the teaching itself, it doesn't create the condition of the soil. Doesn't create the, it doesn't have anything, doesn't create the condition of the soil. It simply makes the condition of the soil obvious. So the problem is not with the clarity of the teaching. The problem is with the condition of the heart that's receiving the teaching. But while, that, while, that, while that's true, it does seem to indicate here in what we read that there's something, something further because it seems to say that, that God actually has an active role at times in the hardening. In a, a sort of a judicial hardening on the, on the part of God. Now, to be certain, the Bible clearly teaches God is not the original reason why the heart is hard to him, right? The Bible, confirmed by our own experience, tells us that people reject God because of their own decision to place something more important above him, something they consider to be more important above him in his place. But there comes a time, and I think this is what the teaching is, when it does seem that God delivers people over to the full consequences of of their freely chosen decision. Right, the most, most prominent example, most obvious example of this in the Bible is Pharaoh. And remember, you go back to the, the story of Exodus, so thousands of years before, before Jesus. The people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, and God commands Moses to go to Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes through this back and forth exercise. He says, okay, they can go. No, I changed my mind. They can't go. And he goes back and forth. And, and, and at the beginning... Whenever he changes his mind, the language of, of Exodus says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then after a while, and as a result of the repeated hardening of his own heart, he was walking along the path, just kept packing it down. As a result of his own hardening of his own heart, the language shifts. You see it in Exodus. 
And then it begins to say, as Pharaoh changes his mind, God hardened his heart. And what it seems to be saying, what Jesus seems to be doing here, is that the parables have the power to do that same thing. They actually become an instrument of God to harden those who persist in their own hardening. Now, is that unfair? That's where the charge would come. Actually, I think we have to admit that it isn't. Because what God is doing is simply responding in judgment, no doubt, but simply responding to a person's persistent resistance and rebellion with a judgment that perfectly fits the offense. Because it's a judgment that is giving the person exactly what that person is persistent in wanting, and that is a life without God. And it's perfectly just. Now, that being said, and there's lots more that could be said, you know, theologically and biblically and stuff about it, but with that being said, theologically and biblically, let me just add something that is absolutely crucial to understanding this. Where the heart of, under, where the heart of, obje- of, of this objection may be coming from in many people is a personal concern. Right? One that begins to wonder, oh no, I wonder if I'm the permanently hard soil. I wonder if God has hardened me. And on the one hand, I think we have to confess the teaching of the, you know, of the, of the parable here. I don't know the condition of anyone's soil for certain. None of us can judge anyone's, anyone's heart. We can observe what grows, but we can't judge the condition of the soil. We broadcast. But I think we, I can also say with a pretty high degree of confidence that if you're genuinely concerned about whether your heart is heart is permanently hard, then it isn't. Because if it were, you wouldn't care. It wouldn't be of any concern to you. That's what hardening is. That's what hardness is. But, But if you're concerned, then what I'd encourage you to do is to consider that concern to be the gentle hands of the gardener tilling your soil, making your soil soft. See, the overwhelming teaching is there is no soil that without the work of the gardener ultimately becomes soft. We all are actually in the the place originally of the hard soil. That's where we start. And and so if 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 that's you, with a deep concern in your own heart, questioning the love of Jesus for you, then, then I want you to consider this. The only pure heart, the only pure heart, the only perfectly soft heart that ever walked the earth belonged to Jesus. Perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect acceptance of God the Father. Now, if that's true, then consider what this perfect heart, what this perfect heart, who always did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Father, consider what that perfect heart did for you. See, this is how the soil gets softened. In John chapter 12, Jesus is approaching his death, and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now there he goes again, riddles, right? No. What Jesus is talking about here is his death. The hour has come for me to be glorified. And he's saying, look, I could remain alive and be the only pure, perfect human heart. But if I die, then the death of the one perfect human heart becomes the means for your heart to be perfect too. In other words, the sower becomes the seed in order to soften the ground and yield an abundant crop. You see that? 
how Jesus softens the hardness. That's how the sower gets the seed into the ground. The sower becomes the seed and dies. He did that for us. That gives our life meaning. That's what softens the soil. That's what should move us, because if that doesn't move us, if that doesn't soften our soil, then, quite, then nothing will. And that's what gives us hope, because if that doesn't give us hope, then nothing will. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you have been so good to us. In our own persistent hardness, you come in, you soften the soil, you break up the hardness, and you yield abundant fruit. God, help us to be bold with this message of hope, with this message of, of, of abundance, of, of productivity, of meaning that comes only from the message of Jesus. God, may we be bold proclaimers of it. May we be humble recipients of it. And may we give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.